Say to yourself, the child is mine. The child is mine. It is mine. Yes, it's yours. No, no, you've got it all wrong. McCoy, it's yours. Bridge to all decks. Brace yourself for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. I am Steve Morris, and I am excited to talk about what I will consider to be among the most middling of Star Trek episodes, <laughs> Friday's Child. Friday's Child is an episode that I it's it's not a great episode. No. Not a bad episode. No. It is a second tier Star Trek episode, but second tier Steve, for season two, is pretty awesome compared to other seasons of other shows. And I feel like, and I know we've talked about this many, many times before as we as we do our deep dives, I feel like Friday's Child is an episode that I have come to appreciate a whole lot more after, after re-watching it and thinking about it in a whole new way, especially since you and I have, have looked at Star Trek as a serialized show and looked at these, these relationships and these themes as connected. And I think that is where this episode got more rewarding to me, but it's still not great. <laughs> well, that's what's been so much fun about having these conversations with you is that even when the episode maybe isn't the best, the world of Star Trek is just so compelling that it makes for a great conversation. And the coolest thing is it's not just the conversations that you and I are having. It's the conversations we get to have with everyone else in the Star Trek community. So for everyone who has been submitting feedback on our Facebook page, on our YouTube page, and especially on Apple Podcasts, we appreciate you very, very much. But we just want to say to uh, a fan named Star Trek Michael, thank you very, very much for your feedback, for your review. We are honored. We are humbled. And we are grateful for your support, and we are thrilled and happy to hear that Enterprise Incidents has has given something very, very important back to you. So, Star Trek, Michael, we thank you. Absolutely, and and we got to say there there are times, you know, doing this show isn't easy, and there are times hearing from some of you is really rewarding and makes all the work of making Enterprise Incidents worth it. So thank you very, very much. Thank you so, so very much. But back to Friday's Child, Steve. Yes. So this episode was filmed between May 19th and May 29th in 1967. A total of eight production days. So it did go over schedule. The schedule was six days normally. At this point, it would get shorter, but we're not there yet. But this was the 33rd episode to film. It was the 40th episode to air on its only network airing Mm. on NBC. It was not repeated. So if you did not see Friday's Child on NBC TV on December 1st, 1967, you'd have to wait till many years later in syndication to see it. Now, here's the interesting thing, Steve, about Friday's Child. So this was supposed to be the 30th and final episode to be produced for season one. But then NBC cut back the order to 29 episodes, which is still a lot, so Friday's Child would have to wait until season two. Friday's Child is written by the great Dorothy, a.k.a. D.C. Fontana, directed by the great Joseph Pevney. The total cost for this episode, so now we are, we are in our third episode of season, of season three, Steve. Mm-hmm. So we've talked many times before about how the shows went over schedule and definitely over budget. And 
they still are not able to bring these episodes on on budget. I mean, look, one hundred eighty-five thousand dollars, even for nineteen sixty-seven. That's, I think that's a thankless task. So this episode did go over budget by almost $27,000. The final cost for Friday's Child was $211,880. I mean, I think you could see it in the final cost. It was, a, it was on location. Yeah, okay? You yeah. had a big cast. Mm-hmm. You had, you had the, the, the costume design yep. for this episode. That's a lot of people. And you also had a brand new score composed by Gerald Freed. This is his third of four original scores for the original series. His fourth score, which we're going to talk about in a couple of episodes, is inarguably his best score. And I'm going to save that for when we get to it. But Gerald Freed's score was recorded on July 7, 1967. So as I mentioned, Dorothy Fontana, she's the credited screenwriter for Friday's Child. She wrote her story outline on January 11th, 1967. She completed two draft teleplays, the second of which came on April 19th, and she did a script polish a day later on the 20th. Gene Kuhn, the showrunner at the time, did a script polish in early of May of 1967, and Gene Roddenberry the great bird of the galaxy himself did a revised final draft teleplay dated May 11th, 1967. Now, Gene Roddenberry's rewrite was very extensive. Mm. And as we get through our scene-by-scene play-by-play, you're going to hear a lot of the ideas that Roddenberry brought to the table and not always to the approval of Fontana. Mm. She was... I would say, not happy about re- being rewritten so extensively. And she felt like Roddenberry's rewrites lost like the intent that she was trying to portray with Friday's Child. Uh, she, it was sort of an unintentional women's lip story that not all women are mommies. Those are her words. Uh, mm. The character of L.E.N. was even more selfish in the original version. And she was even unfaithful to uh, Aka-R, and she brought her newborn baby to Ma'ab, I mean, we're we're jumping ahead, uh, and was willing to sacrifice him in exchange for being allowed to live. But there there are a lot of changes. So Fontana actually requested that her pseudonym, Michael Richards, be used instead of D.C. Fontana, and Rodbury, he basically talked her out of it so she was mm. you know they kept the name dc fontana but uh, i've always liked friday's child i think i like it a little more now i think it's a it's a good it's a solid episode it's it's got it's fast paced it's got a lot going on i think it's a good blend here of action heart and humor uh the whole main cast is here and it's a great acting ensemble where everybody shines especially DeForest Kelly as McCoy, who has a lot going on. Uh, But the superb production values, the location shooting, the extras, and the message about personal sacrifice and the true meaning of courage, uh, those are the the reasons why I think that that Friday's Child really does work. But what did you think of Friday's Child when you were a kid? So I think I talked about this phenomenon before, which is that there are certain episodes 
not because they were good or because they were bad, but for whatever reason, I didn't see as many times. And I think, you know, maybe it was because of Boy Scout meetings or Little League practices or something schedule-wise. There are certain episodes, among them like Immunity Syndrome, That Which Survives, and Friday's Child are episodes that I saw like half as much. because And every time it would come on, I'd always go like, oh, yeah, this one. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to like... Balance of Terror or Mock Time or Doomsday Machine, where I knew them backwards and forwards. This one's like, oh, yeah, what happens in this one? Mm-hmm. Uh, my feelings about it has always been it's okay. It's not like Alternative Factor, which we ripped to pieces, or Cat's Paw, which <laughs> certainly I found lots and lots of problems with. It's not like that. It's They're totally some really fun, really good moments. I don't think it's about that much. And it's enjoyable to watch. That's it's my It's enjoyable. Feeling. Yes, exactly. It's entertaining, like like in the way that a, a, an episode like by any other name is entertaining. You know, it's not about a whole lot. Yeah. Uh, but it's just fun to watch. Yeah. Would you like to know some of the things going on in the world when they filmed Friday's Child? I would love to hear it. So when we last left off <laughs> oh, during Metamorphosis, <laughs> tensions were rising on the Egyptian-Israeli border, and that is continuing to happen. Not only are more reserves being called up by Egypt, but then they decide to blockade all shipping from Israel going into the Red Sea. President Johnson has a meeting with his National Security Council because they are concerned about whether or not Israel now has atomic weapons. So not only are we worried about war in the Middle East, but we're worried about atomic war in the Middle East. On May 26th, an album was released. May 26th. Okay, we're, we're, we're a week ahead of the album that changed the world. Well, that no, that's what I have here, so maybe I'm wrong. I have that Sgt. Pepper was released on May 26th. Okay, I, I have it as, as being released on June 1st. Maybe it was one is in the UK and one is in the US. That's very possible. Yeah. That's very possible because they, they, they were still at a point where, where, where they, they didn't all come out on the same day. And, and also, Sgt. Pepper was the first album in which Capitol Records in the US had had to release a Beatles album the way it was intended to be released. Because up to that point, the Beatles albums, when they came out in the United Kingdom, they came out the way the group intended to be because uh, they were recorded that way, like Please Please Me, Hard right. Day's Night, Beatles for Sale, and so on. But in America, because they didn't catch on until like a year and a half after right. Love Me Do came out, they butchered, hence right. the butcher cover, they butchered the Beatles albums, putting out albums like like Something New, the Beatles mm-hmm. second album, Beatles 65, Beatles 6, uh, and it was not how the group intended right. to be. But Sgt. Pepper, because it was a concept album, because it was a work of art, a complete body of work, Capitol Records from that point forward released the Beatles albums in the U.S. the way they were released in the U.K. But you're right. I think that the uh, the release dates in the U.S. and the and the uh, United Kingdom were different. So let's hear it for Sergeant Pepper coming out during Friday's Child. I, I, I don't think we could overestimate the importance of Sergeant Pepper. I mean, it is, it is. I don't know what the top ten most influential albums of all time are, but that's got to be on the list, right? Uh, can, can you imagine, like, you know, you're going to work one day, like, like they get out to Vasquez Rocks to shoot a scene. You know, can you imagine Leonard Nimoy saying to William Shatner, "Hey, I just picked up the Beatles, uh, Sergeant Pepper." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and Shatner said, "Yes." The song Loosening the Sky with Diamonds. I love it. <laughs> uh, someday, maybe I will record it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, to, to less happy news, uh, there were a whole bunch of ships, Israeli ships, that wanted to run the blockade into the Red Sea, and the Israeli government said, 
please don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. <laughs> at the same time, President Nasser addressed the Arab Trade Unionist uh, Association in Cairo and said that all the Arab nations are prepared to destroy the state of Israel. On the 27th of May, um, Soviet ambassador called Nasser at 3 a.m. and said, please don't do a first strike against Israel. At the same time, Lyndon Johnson called Israel and said, you need to not attack Egypt. And Israel was on the verge of their own first strike. And they had a vote in the Israeli cabinet that was deadlocked, seven to seven. One vote the other way, and they would have committed the first strike against Egypt. It's, it's, like, this, it's like the Cuban Missile Crisis. They, no, they, they became what, yeah. so, so close. But on the next day, you know, Johnson was wondering if Israel had atomic weapons. On May 28th, Israel decided to move forward with the development of atomic weapons. Mm, wow. Um, and on this is where it gets just so scary. On the same day, the Soviet Union told the U.S., called Lyndon Johnson and said that if Israel attacks, the Soviets would extend help to the Arab nations. Whew. So you see where we are. Like, you know, yeah, and that's and that's like when you look when you talk about the Cold War, you talk about Vietnam, like the the conflict with Israel and with Egypt is overlooked. You know, we don't hear as much about that in the conversation about all the different conflicts that were going on in in 1967. Well, we just had literally last week the U.S. pushed through across the DMZ into North Vietnam, and we had the most violent days, and it was the most uh, violent week in the history of that war in terms of American deaths. So. You think about Lyndon Johnson, who is, in my mind, a very mixed president, among the most mixed presidents there is, and what he is dealing with. And by the way, he is about to decide in the next year not to run again. Oh, that's right. In yeah, 68. Well, not seek nomination. Yeah. For the, right. Um, so this is, and I can kind of see why, you know, I look at this and go, yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't want to do this either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? I'm done. So, I'm putting in my two-week notice. <laughs> so would you like to take a break from all the tensions in the world and go instead to the 23rd century and Friday's child? But before we do that, yes. just some, some very interesting news. And, you know, I talked before when we were doing our season one wrap up and season two preview, how, you know, the, this myth that Star Trek was, was a, a ratings disaster mm. is, is, you know, it's like the man who shot Liberty Valance, that line, right. uh, print the legend. Okay. And the legend is that Star Trek did bad in the ratings. Star Trek didn't do terrible in the ratings. It did okay in the ratings. And it was oftentimes the highest rated show on NBC for the night that it aired. But where it did get clobbered in the ratings, when season two premiered and it was sh- it was moved to Friday nights instead of Thursday nights, so Friday's Child, the percentage share was twenty six point six percent. Which, wow. if a show had that today, it would be like a runaway hit. Uh, beyond anything imaginable today. Be- beyond, yeah, twenty six point six. Like like, but for nineteen sixty seven, when you only had three networks plus the independents, twenty six point six was good. Was okay. Yeah, the show that clobbered it. So the show that got a forty three point four percent. Wow, forty three point four over twenty six point six was Gomer Pyle. Gomer Pyle USMC clobbered Star Trek in the eight thirty hour on Friday nights. Well, you, you know what though? I mean, like I, I'm really glad we started doing the what was going on in the world. Yeah, because you look at the news of what was happening. 
and you go, I just want to watch Gomer Pyle. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. th- something. Something like. Dumb and silly. And bewitched. Cute. Yeah. Stuff like that. Gilligan's Island. And, and Star Trek, not particularly Friday's Child necessarily, but Star Trek could be heavy. Oh, yeah. You absolutely. Know, deal with a lot of stuff. And there, is, and there is definitely something about Friday's Child that does tie into a heavier episode, much, much heavier. I think one of the heaviest of the original series that we're going to get to, and I'd say in about uh, you know a few weeks or so. And this is definitely going to be a very interesting conversation on a private little war. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and you know, just you think about what's going on in our world today. And regardless of who you are, or where you are, there's a lot of stress and there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff happening, a lot of darkness and a lot of pain. And what has been the biggest show of the last year? Ted Lasso. Right, right. A show that is warm. And I mean, I think it's a hell of a lot better show than Gomer Pyle. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but it's still a show that's positive and warm that we could find refuge in and not deal with all of the crap. Exactly. You know? it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely cathartic to, to get into something that makes you feel good. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of feeling good, would you feel good about Friday's Child? I, I'm very excited. We start off in the briefing room, right sort of in the middle of a briefing. And strangely enough, the person giving the briefing is McCoy. They're quite large. Seven feet tall is not unusual. They're extremely fast and strong. And what we start to find out is that he was stationed on some planet embedded with these people and was learning about this culture. Capella Four. And on Capella Four, there are, it sounds like very much a warrior class. They have this weapon called a Cleog or mm-hmm. something like a that. Mm-hmm. They have knives and swords and all sorts of weapons. And we are heading there because we need to get some mining rights. And the thing is, they're not, McCoy was there offering medical aid and hospitals and knowledge, and they're not into that stuff at all. Yeah, they, they, are, they are definitely not. And the interesting thing about, about this episode, so throughout the course of the first season, Steve, we have heard so much about Kirk's background. We've sort of done some retcon yeah. <laughs> of our own, providing uh, insight into Kirk's background, especially into Spock's background. So it's so great to finally hear more about McCoy's background beyond right. the whole thing with Nancy Crater from the band trap, but uh, more about his, his profession and his career. So this particular teaser, starting off in the briefing room, is actually the first scene that they shot for Friday's Child. Mm. And they shot it after lunch that day because in the morning, Ralph Sinensky was finishing up work with Zeppelin Cochran and Commissioner Hefford as the companion at the wow. end of Metamorphosis. So they took a break for lunch. They came back to this briefing room scene where for the first time in a produced episode, all seven major players are in the same scene. Wow. You got Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Uhura, and Chekhov in the briefing room. And on the monitor on the bridge is Sulu. Yeah. So they're all in the same scene for the first time. By the, by the way, I don't know if I've said it before, but the design of the triangular shaped monitor. Yeah. So that people could be what we could see people watching it from one side and see their faces and see the face of the person on the monitor is a brilliant, brilliant beat yep. bit of kind of stagecraft of like it's so creative and so cool the, the design. way they set it up. Yeah, yeah, Matt Jeffries, for sure. And I think it's it seems pretty obvious that from Cat's Ball, they went, oh, we're going to keep this Chekhov kid around. Uh, yes, they, they definitely did. And that is absolutely Gene Roddenberry's call. Mm. So Chekhov was not even in the earlier versions of the teleplay. Mm-hmm. The character that had... Chekhov's lines was a was an officer named Frost. But Roddenberry really liked the Chekhov character, so he initiated the change to bring Chekhov 
back and and you know he's got a lot to do in this episode Mm -hmm. so we say we're going to head down to the planet scotty's going to be in in charge and we're a little concerned because there could be klingon ships because they want these mining rights too and that scotty has to be very careful not to create a interstellar incident up here um we beam down i really immediately noticed the new music i think it's great Uh, the music is fantastic i love the score for this new this episode uh, this movie Gerald Freed just did a, such an exceptional score, and so many of the cues were used in, like they did in other original scores, they used the cues in other episodes. But you have four people beating down. You have yes. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and some security guy, redshirt named Grant. Yeah. And uh, it's established in the briefing room. Ordinarily, under these circumstances, I would recommend a large, well-armed landing party. Yes, but in this case, with the more people we take down, the greater chance we have of violating one of the taboos. So we, we, we have to keep it uh, lean and mean. And uh, they definitely kept it mean. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> because Grant is uh, ready for some action here, isn't he? Yeah, because we see a party from the Capellans, and there's uh, the big dudes, including Ma'ab, who becomes one of our main characters, and then... Coming out behind him, a lot smaller guy. A small guy. Is a Klingon. A Klingon! Grant, no! And Grant grabs his phaser, and he's uh, shot by the Clea by one of the Capellans and dies a horrible death. But a lot, a lot of reveals already in the teaser for, for this episode. So Ma'ab, played by Michael Dante, he is uh, definitely a, a, pro- a prolific actor in film and TV. On the big screen, he was starred alongside Elvis in Kid Galahad, and he was also in the film from 1971, Willard, about the rat. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, on TV, he was on TV shows like Maverick, The Texan, Perry Mason, Custer and the Big Valley. And as for the, the little guy uh, uh, playing the Klingon, Crass, whose name, by the way, it's in the screenplay that the Klingon's name is, is Crass. But in the episode, you never hear his name. Yeah. He's referred to as Klingon or the Klingon. But that's Taj Andrews, who was friends with William Shatner, who suggested him to Joseph Pevney for the role. He is an Emmy nominee for Best Supporting Actor in a Drama for The Mod Squad, uh, which ran uh, from 1968 to 1973. He also uh, appeared on TV shows like The Phil Silver Show, The Detectives, Gomer Pyle, The Mod Squad, like I said, uh, Kojak, Chips, Murder, She Wrote. And uh, I have to say, what struck me is that this is now the second time we are seeing a Klingon in an, an original series episode, right. at least in production order. Now, the, the first time was Iron of Mercy, and Core was fantastic. Yeah. John Kalgos was great, and he set the standard, set the bar for a Klingon in the original series. You know, he also had extensive makeup with the Fu Manchu yeah. and the, the darker makeup. So, so here comes this little guy. That if he wasn't wearing the uniform, you would never know that he was a Klingon. Right. Because he's not, he doesn't have any facial makeup at all. He doesn't have any kind of like Fu Manchu or anything to kind of differentiate him from, from the humans other right. than a beard without a mustache. And I don't know. I, I just actually on our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, I did a poll asking people, who's your favorite Klingon? Right. And I totally forgot about this guy. <laughs> well, yeah, well, of course you did. Well, why would you remember? Well, here's what I think is odd about it. And, and I, I'm kind of going to, I actually think this was a good choice, is that we know where the Klingons become, which is they're this warrior society and a lot more of their 
mythos and history and culture gets introduced much later and of course the next generation all we knew about them so far was certainly core and this warrior ideal this guy's totally different yeah he yeah and, he's and more of a like he's more like a ferengi <laughs> well and he's sort of manipulative and whiny and i think what's interesting is we're on this planet with these huge people that are super warrior mm-hmm. casting a klingon that's really small and isn't that I think ends up being kind of an interesting choice in terms of this episode, but then is strange in terms of what Klingons become in general. I think you know the, the, this a lot a lot of information a lot to be to be gained just just from the teaser. So so you have this Klingon who is one Klingon represented by the way who's on this planet that's a little primitive that's more uh, I would say savage in some ways very honorable. And it kind of, again, this is something that, that never occurred to me in the last, you know, 50 years that I've been watching Star Trek and seeing Friday's Child over and over again. But it never occurred to me until I was thinking about it in a serialized way that this is the first of two times where we see one Klingon representative yeah. interfere with a more primitive society. And that other episode, which we'll get to, is a private little war. And the interesting thing, Steve is that in the earlier versions of the, of the story and the outlines and the teleplay by Fontana, the Klingons were not on the planet mm. at all. We never saw a Klingon person. We did, you know, they were still in the uh, sort of space with the uh, distress signal, you know, and all that stuff, but, but they were not on the planet. That was added by Roddenberry. Another ad by Roddenberry was that Grant, our, uh, you know, trigger-happy, phaser-toting security guy who's only on screen for about 15 seconds. He didn't appear in the teaser, nor did he get killed, obviously. That was also added by Roddenberry. Bob Justman, associate producer, actually objected to Grant's demise in the teaser. But when he was doing his rewrite, uh, he was was ignored. Do you know why he objected? Uh, Yes. He objected because he felt that, that Captain Kirk... It was such a bad decision on his part to bring someone so inexperienced and be the only security guard on a planet with so many routines and so many uh, uh, so much so much about their culture that you know, as Kirk said in the briefing room, we can't violate. And he just thought it just showed Kirk to make a huge error in judgment, which is actually completely true. It is a bad error. Like, why would he bring an inexperienced security guard to the planet as the sole security guard? He should bring someone who is extremely experienced, like uh, uh, Lieutenant Commander Giotto from Devil in the Dark. Sure. that someone who's, like, tough and, like, a real true red-blooded security guard. So this is fascinating to me because what I've just heard is one decision from Roddenberry put the Klingon on the planet that I 100% agree with. Mm-hmm. I think that adds so much tension and so much complexity and much more interest to the show. And this other decision of having Grant get killed that I'm totally on Bob Justman's team. This was a terrible idea. And it's not just terrible in the teaser of why would Kirk bring this dude? Because obviously there we, we kn- you don't try to kill someone on sight. Like that, we're not in a state of war with the Klingons, which is what our Klingon says when we come back from the act. I am unaware of any state of war between our peoples, Captain. And here's what makes it worse and why I think it's a big mistake, is then Kirk, who's angry because his guy just got killed, he starts to go after the Klingon. Yep, that's right. And that is not, this is, and I know obviously the continuity wasn't a thing for them when they're doing it, but this is post-Errand of Mercy, where we know that they're at a, 
a place of peace with the Klingons, and Kirk shouldn't want war. Like that, that, that this just doesn't make sense to me in terms yeah, of the characters. Yeah, I, I hear your point, and I completely agree with you. But I think part of that is, and by the way, it was actually when when Roddenberry added uh, Grant to the the teaser and had him killed off, and Bob Justman complained. He complained or, or expressed his concerns not to Roddenberry but to Gene Kuhn, who was the showrunner. Right, but but it was Kuhn who kind of just uh, yeah 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 thanks Bob and he he moved move forward with keeping Grant because Kuhn felt he needed to end the teaser on a really strong yes. dramatic moment which it does which it does well and this is the thing of like you know and this is what makes screenwriting hard is it is a totally dramatic end of the teaser but then it actually works against us in terms of Kirk's character I think so the name of this episode is derived from an 1887 Harper's Weekly version of the old children's mm-hmm. rhyme called Monday's Child. And there is a verse that includes the line, Friday's child is full of woe. So I knew it was from this sort of folk song nursery rhyme mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. but the version that I had seen has Friday's child is loving and giving. Oh, interesting. So I'm sure there are more, I mean, with all these sort of old things, there's multiple versions of them, but that's really different. Do you say full, full of woe? Full of woe? Friday's child is full of woe. Yeah. That makes more sense to me than the one that I looked at. Yeah, yeah. Um, because loving and giving is not a thing we really see in this episode. <laughs> I have known that the Klingons are our sworn enemies by their own words. We understand only that he also offers things of value for our rocks. And he has freely handed us his weapons and other devices. And Kirk goes, well, let me just call my ship first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And our Klingon, Crass, immediately interrupts him and says, then they can bring down an attack upon their village. It is what I told you. Earthmen fear to bargain honestly. And you know what, Steve? Like, Like hearing you say that back to me really makes me think more of just a similar sort of situation that happens in in a private little war. Oh, it's no, they're totally parallel. I, I never thought about that until <laughs> now. <laughs> Here, here's the so we have Aaron and Mercy and a private little war, which are both episodes where the Federation and the Klingons both want a planet for some strategic reason. Right. The difference is is that Aaron of Mercy and a private little war have deep, complicated, difficult moral questions, and Friday's Child has none. Okay, but because of the way you've just linked this episode with those other two, you could argue. And I think it's there. It's a, that same conflict is there, Steve. It's just not as not as on the surface. It's not as overt as the way it's portrayed in Errand of Mercy and A Private Little War. But if you think about it, you know, you've got the Capellans who are primitive, more savage, like the Vietnamese. And then you have the, the Federation, aka the US on one side, and you've got the Klingons, aka the Russians, on the other side. It's there. It's just not it's not nearly as overt and on the surface, which I think is why, for all these years, I never thought about it like that. But linking it makes me see, you know what? It actually is there. So I'll say two things. The first is I want to push back just a little bit. Well, I think Americans might say that the Vietnamese were more primitive or savage. I don't think the Vietnamese would say that. Well, that's true. Because um, they, they and I don't think the, the Capellans would say that either. No, they have a thousand year old culture that you know. And this is the thing: whenever we look at another culture, their culture seems weird. Our culture makes sense, and we rarely look at our own culture for all the messed up stuff within it, which there's a lot. That's the first thing. The second thing I'll say is that. Yes, you could interpret it the way you're saying. It's totally there. Mm-hmm. That, that is exactly happening in the plot. 
but it's not emotionally happening because we don't have because the difference with a private little war and Aaron of Mercy is that there are decisions, philosophical decisions that are difficult that are being made. There's nothing like that in here. I agree with and that. And so, so, and this is the thing, and this is where Star Trek works, is where it manages to marry the adventure and the excitement of the story with deep ideas that we're going to contemplate. And the, there are no deep ideas here. I, I agree with you completely. I agree yeah. with you completely. The, the ideas in those other two episodes are, are, are not explored really uh, it, at all uh, and sort of makes it a missed opportunity, especially because this episode was produced during the Gene Kuhn time right. when, when he was running the show. And, and Gene Kuhn was, was the writer-producer who was so uh, so key to yeah. get putting those messages in his stories. I mean, he wrote Irvin of Mercy. He co-wrote uh, Private Little War, and he produced this, and he did a rewrite on it. But, but I, I agree with you. Those ideas are not explored here. But, on the, uh, but there is something to the fact that you've got the Klingons on one side and the yes. Federation on the other side, and it's a primitive society, a primitive by, by right. our standards. Right. Uh, it's later on. We're in a tent. Kirk is still pissed off. He's pissed. <laughs> they keep their word scrupulously. They're unusually honest. Is that what I heard you say in the briefing room, Doctor? I love McCoy's response. Yes, I mentioned that. And Spock jumps in on Team McCoy here. He also mentioned that they can be highly dangerous. And Kirk is still pushing back. Dangerous if lied to. If their customs are violated, well, we lied to no one, Doctor. We violated no customs. Perhaps you'll explain to me why one of my men is dead. Kirk is still probably feeling a little bit of the loss from when Jackson just perished. Uh, sure, sure. In, in uh, Cat's Paul. Sure. He has to know that it was a, uh, an error in judgment on his part to bring an inexperienced security guard down to the planet. Well, this is, this is where I go. I think dramatically it's totally working. I totally get what's happening. I understand why Kirk's angry. It's interesting. Why, and we get an apology later that's good. But in terms of how we've established Kirk's character, I don't believe this is entirely Grant's fault. He did something wrong. Uh, oh, absolutely, Kirk knows did. that he did something wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the fact and like the fact is like, why is my guy dead? He's like, well, because he drew a weapon on these other guys. But you're also talking about about a commander who who feels the burden so great of command of responsibility, even while he was on the planet in Metamorphosis with Spock and McCoy and Commissioner Hedford. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he tried to short out the companion and it failed miserably. Again, another error in judgment. And he said, you know, he's he's got the responsibility of his people on that planet, yep. plus the the crew out in space on the Enterprise somewhere. Th- th- that's who this guy is. Yeah, and that's what's happening now. And he talks about the 400 people up on the Enterprise that he doesn't have contact with. And actually, I love the cut. When on the planet, when Kirk says, uh, you know, there's a Klingon down here, there's got to be a Klingon ship up there somewhere. And you cut right to check up going, picking up something on the sensors, sir. Seems to be another ship. Well, let's put it on the screen. Scotty, for the second episode in a row, produced is in command of the Enterprise again. And I think that that between Metamorphosis, because in Metamorphosis, uh, the Enterprise didn't even show up until 27 minutes into the episode. But now we are seeing Scotty in command again. And, I, you know, compared to an episode like A Taste of Armageddon, where Scotty was awesome. Yeah. He was terrific in that episode. I feel like in the second season, in the episodes where Scotty was in command, like Metamorphosis and now Friday's Child, he's more comfortable in that role. I think Scotty is terrific on the bridge. He, he's, he's, he's a great stand-in captain 
while Kirk is gone. And Jimmy Dewan, phenomenal performance. Again, another underrated performance from James Dewan. You think it's a Klingon ship? Who else would be playing cat and mouse with a starship? And I think what's interesting, too, is that the dialogue between Sulu and Scotty does a re- at this point, we've really established who these guys are. Absolutely. Because we got to know Sulu before we got to know Scotty, and we saw him, the differences is that he's more aggressive, he's more, prob- I think Sulu is more brilliant in a way than Scotty, whereas Scotty is more controlled, he's more disciplined, and, but, and we see that, oh, I understand why Scotty outranks Sulu, and why Sulu is going to surpass him at some point down the line. And also, with the way everyone has a moment to shine in this episode. You know, you've got Uhura really interacting with Scotty about, you know, especially later in the episode. You know, you got Chekhov again at the science station, which is where we saw him in in Cat's Paw. We go back to the planet and we get an apology from Kirk. An apology from Kirk. Not the first time, not the last time we hear an apology from Kirk to McCoy. We saw it happen in the Corbobite Maneuver. We saw him apologize in The Man Trap, mm-hmm. and now we're seeing him apologize again in Friday's Child. Now, the reason I bring that up, Steve, is because I think the relationship between Kirk and McCoy is just as essential as the relationship between Kirk and Spock. Agreed. And, of course, between Spock and McCoy. But there is a lot more conflict. There has been, there has been a lot more conflict between Kirk and McCoy than that relationship is giving credit for. And I mean that in a good way because they are, into, on the emotional scale, they're on opposite sides. They're both emotional in different ways, and that causes conflict. But they are, they are friends. They yep. respect each other. And I just like the way you know, Shatner plays it perfectly. He kind of like slyly looks up at uh, DeForest Kelly. He's like, uh, Bones. Uh, Bones. Yes, Captain. I shouldn't have chewed you out. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry. <laughs> well, and I'll just say, you know, we've talked about all of Kirk's heroic qualities now many, many, many times. Some people believe that the people we admire shouldn't make mistakes. And I believe the people that I admire are ones who admit their mistakes. And learn and, from them. And learn from them. Yep. Mm-hmm. That is a big, if you look at people who never say they never say they were wrong, I worry about those people. Yep. A woman comes in with a big thing of fruit. <laughs> this is a scene I don't think makes sense because she comes in and we hear that, oh, this is an offering to say, we appreciate you turning over your weapons and obeying the customs. And Kirk reaches out to take the fruit and McCoy says, Jump. If you touch it, her nearest male relative will have to try to kill you. Well, why wasn't that the first thing you said when she came in? Dude, don't touch the fruit. Well, like, you know what? You know, the, what the, but the look on on McCoy's face—it's like he—it's like it just hit him. It just like uh, like just occurred I to guess. him. Oh wait, wait a minute, no, Jim, don't touch it. You know, I, 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 I thought about that too. Actually. It's just like a weird—you know—it's a weird thing written to create a dramatic moment rather than written because it makes sense for the characters. <laughs> and then I love the uh, some big dude opens and we hear. It would appear, Captain, that finds you a disappointment. Some levity. There's yeah. a lot of levity in there's this episode. There's some good jokes in here. And there's a lot of action in it, too. And now we're going to go meet Akaar, the Grand Tier. The Grand Tier, the leader of the Ten Tribes, played by Ben Gage. And we are also going to meet his wife, played by Julie Numar. Julie Numar is playing Elian. Of course, Julie Numar, mm-hmm. she's an icon. 
I mean, she's a legend. She is a two-time Golden Globe nominee for The Marriage Go-Round and My Living Doll. On TV, she was a staple in the 60s, 70s, and 80s on TV shows like The Monkees, Get Smart, Love American Style. I loved that show. Mm -hmm. Jason of Star Command, and one of my favorite shows, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. But of course, (laughs) everyone knows Julie Newmar as the Catwoman in the TV series Batman. And there were a few actors who played the Catwoman. Uh, You could argue that Eartha Kitt was the best Catwoman. I would argue that. I would argue that too, actually. (laughs) But I feel like Julie Newmar is the most iconic, and she's the one Mm -hmm. who's sort of uh, been been referenced and you know you sure. see more of her uh, because uh, she was certainly built for that that suit in this one in this episode she is uh, not flaunting that uh, that amazing figure because she has to have a pillow strapped to her belly because Elian is pregnant and the first thing we hear is Kirk protests the killing of his crewmen and I love what Akar says if it was your man was it not his privilege to die for you I do not understand. Their customs are different, Tier. And the Klingon says, And different from those of my people too, Tier. The sight of death frightens them. I think uh, Crass actually plays this really well throughout most of the episode until he totally doesn't. Right. He has a better understanding of this culture and how to manipulate them, certainly than Kirk does. But McCoy, who is our expert in this culture, steps up and says, Let me take this, Jim. What Mahab has said is true. Our customs are different. What the Klingon has said is unimportant, and we do not hear his words. And all the Capellans are laughing. I just called the Klingon a liar. So Ma'ab and Akaar mm-hmm. are clearly at odds. Yes. There is a big power play going on. Interestingly, in earlier versions of this uh, story, Ma'ab and Akaar were brothers. They were brothers, and I, I, mm. I never understood why that was written out, because that would have really sort of developed a, totally. a, a Cain and Abel-like relationship yeah. that would have elevated some of the drama and conflict within the episode. But that was taken out, but it was uh, uh, Roddenberry who added in that in addition to the mining rights, Kirk was going to offer to share knowledge to help the right. compellents. Well, and what's interesting is now we see the cultural difference and why the Klingons kind of have an advantage in this negotiation, because we know that McCoy came to offer medical knowledge that they're not interested in. And the Klingon says, What do Earthmen offer you? Powders and liquids for the sick. (laughs) We Klingons believe as you do. The sick should die. Only the strong should live. But the way that the Capellans are depicted as this strong and very honorable society, mm-hmm. you know, the honor above all is something that would, we would really see from the Klingons yeah. in The Next Generation and all the other shows moving forward. But we're seeing it from the Capellans here. And by the way, the Capellans, uh, uh, actors like Michael Dante and so on, in order to appear like they were so tall, not only did they wear elevated heels on their right. shoes, but they also wore costumes in which with they're... With big hats. With the big hats, <laughs> yeah. you know. I mean, they kind of look like Teletubbies a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> these, but, are, these are not my favorite costumes in yeah, Star Trek history. Yeah. <laughs> they're not so great. Um, and then Kirk's counter to the Klingons is... The Earth Federation offers one other thing, Akar. Our laws, and the highest of all our laws, states that your world is yours. Whereas the Klingons conquer people. And, the, and we see this thing that you said, is there is tension between Ma'ab and Aka'ar, right up to the point where 
Wait, are these dudes gonna fight? Do you say you will fight me, Mob? Let that be your choice, dear. What we're st- seeing here is that there is we're establishing sort of a, a civil war mm-hmm. that is about to break out on Capella. And again, like like going back to what I was saying just a little bit earlier, there there's something going on that, that uh, with regards to, to a metaphor that is it's very, very subtle uh, in, in sort of yeah. the parallels to, to, to what was going on in the 60s, especially in Vietnam. It's not explored enough to really give Friday's Child the depth and the, the gravitas that Private Little War and, and Aaron de Mercy and even Taso Armageddon have. But it's there. It's there. You just got just to gotta look for it. I'd be very curious to read Dorothy Fontana's original script. Yeah. My, my guess is I would find it flawed, too, because I think what's happening is there's a competition for our attention on several different ideas. And so none of them quite get explored fully. I think the Ma'ab-Aka'ar conflict and where the tribe should go and how our, and the culture is more interesting to me than Elion and the pregnancy. There are elements of that that I like, certainly good scenes and fun moments, but I'm not emotionally involved. Now, maybe that's just because I'm a dude, you know what I mean? And I like dude stories, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, but that's what's sort of hard. Anyway, we cut back to the Enterprise and we hear Uhura's hearing a distress signal or something. Yep. We come back and we're right in the middle of a battle. Because Ma'ab's men have attacked Akaar's men and Kirk peeks out of that tent and joins into that battle. Yeah, he can't wait to get into that battle, yeah. but not only does he get into the action, but yeah. he, he takes advantage of the, the fact that the Capellans are completely distracted, and he goes into the tent to look for his communicators. Where he finds the Klingon is way ahead of him, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and I like the Klingon does a Kirk move, like, oh, I don't really want to fight you, attack! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's no match for Kirk. Kirk immediately is on top of him, he's got the knife to his throat, Hypervessel, location. And right at that moment, we hear... Release him. Because Ma'ab and his men are standing over Kirk. Uh, with their swords drawn on Kirk. Aka'ar is dead. I am the tear. And the first thing we hear is, kill them now. Wait. If you leave these people now, be certain you make the right decisions. Kirk is now starting to play this guy much, much better. Because mm-hmm. the Klingon is trying to be manipulative and says... Is a new leader of the Ten Tribes afraid? Let me kill them for you. Or let the Klingon on me fight. It might amuse you. This is a great, great point. I'm glad you brought this up. Because for the first part of the first act here, and the teaser, the Klingon is pulling the strings with the Capellans. The Capellans like the Klingons because they, they see similarities in the culture. In the warlikeness, yeah. In the warlikeness. And Cross, the Klingon, is very confident but this is a shift where Kirk, the short time he's been on Capella 4, has observed a lot. And Kirk is a fast learner. Yeah. We have established this. Yeah. He starts to see how to manipulate the situation to be persuasive. And that's what he is doing. That's one of his gifts. And Ma'ab is starting to like the Earth Man. Right. And from this point forward, you see that Ma'ab is having less respect for the Klingon and more respect for Captain Kirk. You know what I just figured out is that what we said about this culture is that they are warlike and they are honorable, obsessed with honor. 
And the reason that the Klingon was able to make such inroads with him is he goes, we're warlike too. We're right. totally with you on this. Yep, that's right. The thing is, though, Crass, at least, not talking about the Klingon culture we're going to learn about later on, is not honorable. Mm-hmm. He is clearly dishonorable and demonstrates it many times. And Kirk is honorable. Definitely. That's right. And, um, and yeah. And I love that Ma'ab, who is, I find his character probably the most interesting of the people we meet, because the moment he becomes the leader, he looks at things differently. Perhaps to be a tear is to see in new ways. I begin to like you, Earthman. And I saw fear in the Klingon's eye. And, and look at, you know, in this very, very quick amount of time that we saw Akaar in charge, he's, he's more rational. He's got this honor. But he's more accommodating, I guess, to to the situation, to the environment. Ma'ab has a clearer vision on the kind of leader he wants to be. I think the moment that he becomes leader, his perspective shifts. I have the signal clear now, Mr. Scott. It is a distress call. It's from the SS Deirdre. Deirdre? That's a freighter. Reporting they're under attack. Now, I mentioned how Gene Roddenberry made a lot of changes Mm. to Friday's Child. One of the big changes that Roddenberry suggested was that the Enterprise be lured away by a distress signal, leaving Kirk, Spock, and McCoy to fend for themselves on Capella. So Uhura tries to hail the captain, and they cannot get in touch with them. They're they're not getting hailed back, and that brings us back to Capella. And Julie Newmar walks in past the people that have killed her husband, and one of them trips her, and she falls, and her hand goes into the fire for a moment. And Kirk wants to go help her. And again, Bones stops him. You carry a child who would be Tear. I must die. And they raise a knife, and they're going to kill her. No! And who just steps in and says, no? Captain James T. Kirk. <laughs> not going to let this woman get killed in front of him. They fight. They don't do that well. Spock in particular doesn't do very well, which I kind of <laughs> go, I think you could have done a little bit better than that. He laid hands upon me. It is my right to see him die. Kirk must be thinking, I just sacrificed myself for you. For you? Yeah. How ungrateful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think the establishment, this is where I kind of go like, I wish we either spent more time with the idea. Of, I love the idea that they were brothers and this culture and Ma'ab. Or spent more time with her because I, I, I don't get pulled into her character's story the way I think I was supposed to. I have it on the census, sir. Tie into my channel, Lieutenant. Right. Commanding, we are under heavy attack by Klingon vessels. Two convoy ships are already damaged. We must have help. Enterprise, acknowledge. Please acknowledge. Repeat. And Sulu lays an interception course. And then Scotty... Scotty makes a command decision. Prepare to take us out of orbit, Mr. Sulu. Scotty, the captain. We have a distress call from a Federation ship under attack. That's where our duty lies. Act two. We're back on the Enterprise. The music is dramatic. And we hear Scotty's log telling what's going on. Our inability to reach the landing party is strange. And I am concerned. I think that is a totally useless scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's telling us everything. I already knew it. Like, and I and this thing, I'm not. I don't think that the Enterprise scenes are bad. I just think they're too long. It's like we didn't have enough pages to fill this story, and so because we have, way, there's just not that much going on. But you know what? I have to say that 
I really like the framework of episodes that cut back and forth between the planet and the enterprise. The planet and the enterprise. Me too. I don't have a problem with it, but uh, and we'll get to when we get to some of the other cutbacks of the enterprise. It's like we're going there and we spend 35 seconds or 2 minutes for not that much going on, you know. Well, like you know what I was thinking about this. I forgot to mention this while we were doing our deep dive on metamorphosis with mm-hmm. with Ralph Sinetsky, but I was so into and, and I think about this every time I watch Metamorphosis, that, you know, you're on the planet with Kirk, Spock, yeah. McCoy, and, and uh, Hedford. And, you know, you don't see the Enterprise until 27 minutes into the episode. Right. Like, why even sh- kind of show them at all until the, the last moment? Yeah. Like, it kind of works better, like, establishing their, their solitude on the planet if you don't see the Enterprise. So, actually, I think, I mean, as much as I love that episode, you know, maybe it would have worked just as well, if not better, by not cutting to the Enterprise and just only staying on the planet and showing just how they are on their own. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. And the scenes in both cases on the Enterprise are good, but they're not great, you know? But I do love Scotty in them. Yeah, and there's there's one really great moment coming up on the Enterprise that I wouldn't have wanted to miss um, that is not only fun, but also important in terms of the establishment of one of our characters. That's true. Our check-in signal is one hour, 12 minutes overdue. Since no reconnaissance party has appeared, and since Mr. Scott is notably efficient in such matters... I must assume that something's keeping them busy up there. And then McCoy, who's been thinking this whole time, says... Captain, I'm going to fix that woman's arm. They can only kill me once for touching her. And I love the way Kirk and Spock play the next moment because they, in a very false tone, say, That's a very good idea, Bones. Yes, Captain. An excellent idea. And we're like, okay, they're up to something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're <laughs> going to take advantage of uh, McCoy distracting yeah. the security guy, or you know, the, or the guards, <laughs> rather, by going over to L.E.N., and uh, they're going to use that as a way to orchestrate their escape, which is what they do. Yep. And another little action scene that I have to say is done without any stuntmen. Oh. Or at least not on the part of yeah, Shatner and it's, our, it's It's definitely our guys. You said you prepare to die. Does that mean you prefer to die? To live is always desirable. Yeah, yeah, you know what? <laughs> Having second thoughts about this yeah. whole dying thing. <laughs> and by the way, that is where the final version veers away from Fontana's mm. intent with this character. She starts to show some empathy, and she's more she's more likable in some yeah. ways. And like Fontana really wanted to keep her just ruthless and selfish from start to finish. I think the episode works better the way it does because you see an arc in the character and it, and it's more beneficial. And also for 1967, uh, I, you know, I think that to show someone so ruthless like that, not that I would have had a problem with the fact that it's a woman doing this, but the fact that it would have really been uh, a heavy, heavy episode, uh, at least a lot heavier than it actually is. To me, I can't, I can't judge that at all without reading, well, what does that mean to be ruthless? Like without actually reading the script. That's true. Um, I do wish, and, and again, this is, definitely 2021 perspective i think there was opportunities to make her more of a badass in one way or another that would have made her a more interesting character she's very much kind of a grumpy object in the way that she is treated as a character that's true you know yeah um and not as dynamic or interesting and and the way that that fontana the way that she said she wrote her she was dynamic and interesting 
We've made an agreement, Bob. I have a right to my weapons. Your weapon will be returned when our business is completed. This is this is the shift. Yeah. This is the shift. Like you can see that cross, the Klingon. He's like, you know, he's fidgety. He's pacing. You know, Mob is just sitting on his throne. And he saw fear in the Klingon's eyes. Yep. Which mm-hmm. is the worst thing in this culture that he could have seen. Yeah, I, I feel like across the Klingon, he never recovers. No. From this point forward, you yeah. can see that from this point forward that that Mob has has lost respect for him. If yeah. not, not the Klingons in general, but certainly but this, guy. this guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're back on the Enterprise, and we've arrived at where the freighter should be. It's not there, and I do like the moment where they're going. Yeah, it should, we should be able to see it. And Sulu says, "At best, a freighter might travel warp two. I'm well aware of a freighter's maximum speed, Mr. Sulu. Yeah, mind your hell, Mr. Sulu. Yeah. It's like, I've been doing this a long time. I, I, know that, I know that. We're back on the planet, and where, what location have we arrived at, Scott? Well, I'm glad you asked, Steve, because they have arrived for the fourth and the final time for an original series episode back at Voxquez Rocks, about 45 minutes north of Los Angeles. So this is the fourth time shooting on location of Voxquez Rocks after Shore Leave Arena and the Alternative Factor. Now, this episode was shot in May. And Steve, you and I have been living in L.A. for many, many, many years now, going on decades. And May is a really comfortable month to live in Los Angeles. The temperature is usually in the low to mid-70s, and it really is like like the sweet spot for the weather. In May of 1967, when this episode was being filmed, L.A. was going through a bad heat wave. And north of Los Angeles, when you get way the heck out there, it's even hotter because you're kind of getting into the desert. So the temperatures got as high as 110 degrees. Oh, Oh. Now, for Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, who are wearing their, you know, their velour shirts and pants, I mean, it was bad enough. But for actors like Michael Dante and uh, certainly for uh, Julie Newmar wearing 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 the period garb, you know, those, especially, you know, Michael Dante in the compelling garb, those actors were wearing a lot of clothes and it got ridiculously hot for them. Oh, that's so brutal. Um, people don't realize how physically difficult filming can sometimes be. It's a it's it's a lot of work. It can be a can be a really rough time. And we hear in the log that they don't have their communicators and phasers. That the capellants are going to come after them. And then we hear. And we have learned one thing more: the girl Len hates the unborn child she is carrying. And this is all through the captain's log, which is a perfect way to just. Throw out some exposition. <laughs> it's ter- it's, that's terrible screenwriting as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's like you could have had a moment where she said something yep. about hating the child. You know, like I could live if this child, you know, or, you know, like the, something that would have been dramatic and interesting instead of just having Kirk tell us the information. Uh, and by the way, I I'd never thought about that, that, that the captain's lock was a blatant use of exposition until this rewatch right. because of... You know, all the things that you have discussed, uh, being a filmmaker about exposition is something that, that, that I now see because of our conversation. Well, this is, I was, I was saying, I had come up on the cinephiles that at, in, when I was in film school, I was at my arrogant worst. I was miserable to be around because I would point out everything that's wrong with movies because going to film school made me aware of the craftsmanship. And now I have given you the gift of noticing a certain kind of flaw. <laughs> yes, you have. And I thank you for that. Well, it's, sometimes, it's, sometimes ignorance is bliss. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <You know? true. laughs> um, and McCoy is with Elian, who is resisting him. Now listen, you may be a Capellan woman and the widow of a high tier, 
but I'm a doctor. And it's my tradition to care for the sick and injured. I love the chemistry between DeForest Kelly and Julie Newmar. I think it's great. I uh, think this is the stuff in the episode that's totally working. It absolutely works. First of all, DeForest Kelly, like I said, he really shines in this episode. His loyalty to the landing party with Kirk and Spock, but he's also, first and foremost, a doctor, and this is his patient, and she is, she is resisting, and his bedside manner is perfect for someone like this. Um, I just came up with a whole new episode. What's that? That is the episode I would make. Is that if you made it McCoy centric, like if because here's the we heard this idea that this culture doesn't like doesn't care about hospitals or healing the sick, the sick should just die, and therefore McCoy, who is a non warrior, must look like the lowest status person possible based on the viewpoint of this culture, and if the story were about him making her understand what a doctor is and the bravery, the honor the skill, the compassion, and that is the change she went through, that would be a really interesting story, you know? That would be an interesting story. You know, I think if, if let's say, they did this story in, like, the Rick Berman years during Next Generation sure. or Deep Space Nine or Voyager, that that, that would have happened. You would have had a more McCoy-centric storyline. Because you could totally imagine a, a situation where McCoy is willing to give his life for his patient, and shows tremendous courage. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you could also show, like, because she had, there's the one moment that I think is really interesting where she says he has soft, soft hands because she, she never felt hands from a man that aren't warrior's hands. And then sees what those soft hands are capable of, sees him care for, like, a wound, another wounded person, you know, and, or sees maybe there's someone dying and you see McCoy comfort them in the last moment of their life. And she observes this and this yep. changes her. And then that leads because she's going to be the regent that we see some future change in this culture that's going to, yeah, we can be honorable and we can be warriors, but we can also have this other thing. Absolutely. And in this moment, we have like a little spark of what I'm talking about because he gets her to show her arm and he touches it and it obviously relieves the pain and she looks at him differently like, oh. That was something. You just did something interesting. Uh, we're back with Kirk, and we see the Capellans are coming. <laughs> this is one of the things about this episode is, man, they take a long time to travel a very, very short distance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now she is sitting down, and McCoy is going to examine her pregnant belly. Okay, now for 1967, when we see McCoy touch her twice, she mm -hmm. slaps him, mm -hmm. and he's startled. Yeah. But then he goes to do his he's like he just doesn't see he looks at her, but then he goes back to do his job like, okay, and he touches her again, she slaps him again, and then McCoy waits a beat. And she kind of smiles at him. She's like, Yeah. And she slaps him back. He slaps her back. Yep. And I think that was exactly the right choice. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean not I mean, look, uh I think she respected him because of that. Well, this is the there, there's like these dogmatic things. I don't believe in hitting anybody, and I certainly don't believe in he. I'm a big guy. I don't believe in hitting someone weaker than me. I don't believe in hitting kids. I don't believe in women. I'll go back to my first statement. I don't believe in hitting anybody. Ditto. But that doesn't mean that there should be some. She hit him multiple times. He is trying to help her baby, and that that is the right choice at that moment to do. Exactly. You know? and, and he's able to continue doing. What, what his basically doing his job and caring mm -hmm. for his patient yep. and the baby. And after examining her abdomen, he says, Just as I thought, 
can come any time now. How do you know? Because I'm a doctor, that's how I know. Even the women of our village cannot tell so much with a touch. And then she covers his hand. And I love that Spock walks up and and he sees <laughs> this is great. Yeah. He sees that Elian has her hand on McCoy. And McCoy looks up <laughs> and he like takes his hand away yep. really, really fast like he's embarrassed. And Spock, you know, kinda nods, you know, the the the, the fun sort of a relationship he has with McCoy. There are many little Spock beats in this episode that are really fun. <laughs> Well, and this is where I go, like, you know, compared to an episode like Cat's Paw, this episode's way better. Agreed. Yeah, it's just not a great episode of Star Trek. It's There are many good things in it. Um, and again, we're with Kirk and Spock. We see the people are coming. They're basically not even hiding. Like, they're <laughs> totally visible to those guys below them in the rocks. If we could block off that entrance, hold them off, it'd give us more time. They'd have to go around these hills. There is enough loose rock and shale. Do you think we could create a sonic disruption with two of our communicators? Well, we have a very slight chance it would work. And now we see Kirk use the move that we saw him use in City on the Edge of Forever, <laughs> where he says, Well, if you don't think we can, maybe we shouldn't try. Captain, I didn't say that exactly. This is a great moment that one of a couple in this episode that I never considered before until our connection mm-hmm. as a serialized show and the evolution of these characters and the background of these characters. So at one point, you know, you, you, know, you see Kirk... And it's like you, you could see that he has this epiphany, this aha moment where he's going to use uh, sonic vibrations from the communicator to cause an avalanche. And that's what he discussed with Spock. Right. Pretty smart, don't you think? It is. Absolutely. I had the same thought. He is pretty smart. And he was the one who came up yep. with the idea, not Spock. And Mob is getting close now. And they all stop because all of us hear this noise and there's a rumble. And Spock and Kirk go away from their communicators, and there's a big explosion of the rocks and a whole bunch of fake rocks <laughs> yeah, fake go rocks. flying down the hill. And that is the end of Act 2. Not the best ending of an act for but, me. But Steve, you know, I see your point on why Friday's Child is not hailed as one of the better Star yes. Trek episodes. And I agree with you, because I never thought of it as one of the better Star no, Trek it's, episodes. It's, it's in the middle. But... But the more we talk about it, the more I see there is a lot going on in this episode. It is a extremely well-produced episode. You've got a great score. You have all these extras. You've got, you've got drama. You have action. You have humor. You have heart. And you have a big explosion on location shooting. You've got this uh, levity between... Uh, between Kirk and 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 Spock and and Spock yeah. and McCoy and McCoy and Elian, and there's a lot going on here. And I'm thinking maybe this episode actually is better than we thought it was, or maybe not. <laughs> well, it, it it is. However, you felt that it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if if someone said, Steve, do you want to sit down and watch Friday's Child again right now? I'd go, eh, not really. 
am I going to at some point watch Friday's Child again? Of course I will. Totally. Right, right. right. Are you are you going to watch the alternative factor again at some point? There's a very strong chance, maybe once more in my life. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe even if that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. By the way, the, 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 it's the world's quickest digression, but you know what this sonic vibration to create this explosion made me think of? Uh-huh. Um, do you know about the Tacoma Narrows Bridge? You've probably seen the film of it. It's this bridge that collapsed in 1940, and there's a film that's very famous where you see the road waving like this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Do you know why that bridge collapsed? No, I don't. Because of sonic vibrations. Is that right? Yeah. What happened was they built the railing of the bridge in a certain way that when the wind came through at a certain speed, it created a, a harmonics at a certain pitch, and that harmonics escalated, and that's the waves you see in the bridge. It's just the exact framing of that railing that created a specific sound that destroyed a whole bridge. That is where that why that happened. Wow. So there is real science of so like if you is. set up the exact right vibration at the right harmonic, you could do some pretty dangerous stuff. You know, I was thinking while the scene was while I was watching the scene, you know, when we're talking about arena and and Kirk built the cannon, what was the this TV show that actually like try to retrace Kirk's steps. Uh, Mythbusters. Mythbusters. Yeah. I, I thought about, gee, I wonder if Mythbusters would uh, kind of debunk this theory about the, how sonic vibrations would cause an avalanche. But but well, I guess it could happen. Well, I don't think what they're doing could work at all. I mean, I don't live in the 23rd century, so maybe it could. But but avalanches are clearly caused by sound. I mean, snow avalanches, that's a, reg- a loud vibration can be enough to set off an avalanche. That's uh. totally true. We're back at Act 3 with the same smoke and fake rocks falling. Um, and the Klingon uses this distraction to get up and get a phaser. And he puts it in his boot. And he kills a dude. Just like that. With, By the way, an incredibly fake-looking stabbing oh, that clearly, bad. clearly misses him. And but, why would you kill a guy? Uh, maybe because he would get up and say, hey, where's the phaser? But and he, then Ma'ab would know immediately who took the phaser, that it was the Klingon. I guess, but he's unconscious. He didn't see you take the phaser. But if he gets up yeah. and he knows the phaser is missing. I thought about that for a second. But if you too, see a guy with a, uh, with a stab wound, mm-hmm. somebody mm-hmm. killed him. <laughs> You know, well, that's true too. Yeah, but but or maybe not because maybe because Kirk what I did Spock, notice, yeah, what I did notice about the scene is that after the avalanche, after the surviving Capellans have gotten up and dusted themselves off, they didn't, they did not go back to see who was injured or who was killed. They just got up and they kept moving. Yeah, they did not worry about you know the six should die. Yep. Okay, and whoever's that makes perfect left sense. behind, you know, screw them. Let's keep going. Worried about the delivery. Palins aren't human, Jim. They're humanoid. There are certain internal differences. I don't have the equipment to handle in an emergency. And Kirk plays the same move. Well, if you don't think you're going to handle it, forget it. I can do it. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, there's just no way that little avalanche is keeping these guys out. But look, yeah, so it's definitely a, uh, a bit of a stretch and, the, the, and requires all, a suspension of disbelief. Yeah, all, all for of sure. this stuff. And I'll shut up about it. But all of this stuff with them coming is just like. It takes too long. I don't believe these defenses. That it just it doesn't. Work I, I agree with you. This is definitely a, a case where you just have to suspend your disbelief yep. and just go with it. But McCoy is helping Elian, and Kirk goes to help her, and she says, "No, only McCoy." Because McCoy earned her trust. Exactly. And then Spock goes to help her, and she says, "No," and we get one of the classics. This is among my favorite of these. Look. 
I'm a doctor, not an escalator. Spock, give me a hand. <laughs> That's I like. I, I'm a doctor, not an escalator. Is one of my favorites. You know, when Star Trek was able to to establish a, a rhythm and a sort of a running gag, you know, we're going to see a uh, a running gag established by Chekhov soon. Mm-hmm. I see. I yep. love that stuff. Um, I, I I running gags frequently turn for me at a certain point. You know, like uh, James Bond at a certain point, or. Schwarzenegger finding a way to say, I'll be back in every, you know, or the yeah, quips about, yeah. uh-huh. you know, I let him go. Like all of those kind of, like at a certain point, I'm like, I'm done with this, mm-hmm. you know. But at this moment, I'm not. I think they're a lot of fun. We cut back to the Enterprise, still can't find it. And then Scotty asks Chekhov to pull the tape on the distress call. Right. Scotty has a, an epiphany. He yep. says, wait a minute, play back the distress signal from the Deirdre. And we hear it again, and what we hear is that they call the name Enterprise specifically. And that is definitely a cause of big suspicion on Scotty's part. Would they normally call for the nearest starship? How would a freighter know we were ordered into the sector? So they are definitely suspicious, even more concerned about their comrades they left behind on Capella 4. But Scotty, doing his duty is going to play it safe and do a little more investigating just to make sure that they are not being paranoid. So, and this is where I go, no, they should have just head back then. Like, that, that's where I go, you're extending these scenes on the Enterprise, and it would be more dramatic. It's like, the captain's in danger. Let's go back, I maximum morph. That. that would be more interesting. Like, to, to, to play this beat again, no, they're really not here. Is a, It's a static situation. It's not, inter- it's not interesting. That's For the first time. I actually did think to myself, it would have been more dramatic for him to say, well, have yeah. warp nine, <laughs> yeah. you know, back to Capella yeah. 4. Uh, Kirk uses some kind of weird tablet that he hits to make some fire to light up yeah, this cave. Yeah, which is kind of cool. It's kind of cool. McCoy is w- working with Elian, and she's directing him to where the pain is. And Kirk asks, how did you arrange to touch her bones? Give her a happy pill? No. Right cross. <laughs> <laughs> Never seen that in a medical book. Send mine from now on. <laughs> that's a great. That's great. Uh, these are the. This is why I go like there are really good elements in this episode. Yes, it's, I agree. Th- that's why it's not a bad episode. But but the uh, but the good the the, the the sum is not greater than uh, the whole is not greater than the sum of its parts. I think this episode hits so squarely in the middle to me, where it's balanced. But there's nothing, and there's nothing in this episode, or very little, that I go that was bad. There's nothing bad. In exactly. It. It's yeah, just no, things no. that are less than great. Mm-hmm. McCoy is trying to convince her that she must want the child. No. Here, child belongs to husband. So they take all the credit here. Poppycock. Again, great scene between mm-hmm. Julie Newmar and DeForest Kelly. So he's trying to convince her that to want the baby. And so he's like going, doing the repeat after me. Say to yourself, the child is mine. The child is mine. It is mine. And I love the language turn she makes because she goes, Yes, it's yours. No, oh, you've got it all wrong. Yes, McCoy, it's yours. You go, see any? No, 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 say this. The child is mine. It is mine. It is. And you see a look on Elian's face of, it's a smile and then a bit of pain. And he goes, uh-oh, the baby is coming. And then we cut back to Kirk and Spock, who hear a crying baby. 
That's more like it. But Steve, what are Kirk and Spock doing at this moment? They're making bows and arrows. They are making bows and arrows from the native elements. Yes. Now, I could see that maybe Spock would know how to do this. But why does Kirk know how to do this? Are you saying because he's a nerd? Because he is a nerd. (laughs) Because he is that stack of books with legs. Steve, this is the James T. Kirk who fashioned a cannon out of the native elements on an asteroid to defeat the Gorn in Arena. And with that same intelligence, that same book smart knowledge that he had back in the academy, he knew, like Spock, how to make a bow and arrow out of the native elements. This is another example of Kirk being Spock's equal, especially after a scene, not in a great episode, the alternative factor, but you and I agree that the briefing room scene in that right. episode between the two of them is, is, is essential to establishing that Kirk is an equal to Spock. And we are seeing that right here, uh, back to the alter- that moment in the alternative factor, back to that moment on the asteroid in Arena. I, I agree, but I also kind of go, the alternative factor one was like serious astrophysics. Totally. Whereas this is more like, well, he is a trained military person. You know what I mean? So I find this slightly less nerdy. I also just, <laughs> I, I, I was a Boy Scout. I have Archery Merit Badge. One of the requirements for Archery Merit Badge was to create a bowstring. That took like two days. <laughs> well, still. <laughs> to make a string. <laughs> but, but, and I but, had tools and things to do it with. But bows and arrows in the 23rd century, probably not as common for uh, a, a, a more advanced technology like the uh, Federation. A- absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, and these bows and arrows, you wouldn't hit anybody. <laughs> yeah, They're yeah, yeah. terrible. <laughs> but they have made them. The baby is crying. And we also hear that they don't have bows and arrows on this planet. So this might totally surprise them. Later on, Bones comes out and shows off the baby, and he's got a big smile on his face, and he hands the baby to Mr. Spock. And I love Spock's reaction. He, McCoy is trying to show him how to hold the baby. He's, no, 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 like this. And, and Nimoy is so great. It's hilarious. <laughs> no, no, Mr. Spock, that isn't the way you place this arm under here to support its back, and this hand here to I support would its rather, head. I would rather not. Thank you. <laughs> That's, that is so funny. McCoy. Bring our child. And the look on Kirk's face. Our child. I'll explain later. That should prove very interesting. For some reason, this is now, we have to assume that hours have passed. And even though the bad guys were only 30 feet away from them when they dropped, they still haven't managed to get there. (laughs) It's taken a really long time. Yeah, it's definitely taken a long time. Um, You're right. We're back on the Enterprise. Um... And we have continued to search. We still haven't found anything. And so we're going to head back. Warp Factor 5. On course for Capella 4. Warp 6 as soon as you'll take it, Mr. Sulu. The captain could be in trouble back there. Again, James Dewan is terrific. Um, and, well, and, and this is one of my favorite moments of him coming up because, hey, we're getting another distress signal. This one's from the USS Carolina, which was reported in that sector. And without missing a beat, what does Scotty say? Ignore it, Lieutenant. Log it is my order, my responsibility. Aye, aye, sir. Scotty, if it should turn out to be real. There's an old, old saying on Earth, Mr. Sulu. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I love that. I love that saying. Great line, and I love Chekhov's reaction. 
I know this saying. It was invented in Russia. And this is a running gag that would appear forever for, for, for the rest of, uh, of Chekhov's time in the original series. But I love like the, the smirk on his face. Exactly. That's like, what I was going to say. He's just too. having fun. Well, cause, cause he knows it's a joke and this is, and, and what are, this is what I wrote down in my note. I'm like, and there is his character. That's his character. The guy who said, I'm not that green. That's not actually Chekhov's character. This is Chekhov's this character. guy who is making a little joke and and because he's the youngest guy in the bridge mm-hmm. and Scotty is his commanding officer and he should feel insecure, but he doesn't mind. I'm going to poke a little just a little bit in a cute way. That's Chekhov's character. But by the way, the running gag with this mm-hmm. constantly bringing up that everything came from Russia was from Gene Kuhn. Not surprising. Gene Kuhn started it. And uh, uh, I think that is a, a great addition to his character. And also, I have to say. Uh, a way to differentiate the characters of of Chekhov from Sulu. Yep, absolutely. They're very, very different. Um, McCoy is nodding off, and Elian grabs a rock, knocks him out, and leaves the cave. Th- this shot is one of the prettiest shots in Star Trek, the next one. It's a shot framed by the entrance of the cave with Kirk on an outcropping of rock squatting in the foreground and Spock way in the background on another rock higher up, his back to camera facing away. It is like a really formalized, beautiful shot. Oh, I never noticed. It's really good. Check it out. I will. It's a really, really good shot. They come down and McCoy comes out of the cave rubbing his neck. She's gone. The child? It's all right. It's in there. I guess I'll forget psychiatry. Stick with surgery. I really thought she'd learn to want it. Why does she knock him out and leave the baby? Let me ask that question. Why does she knock him out? Well, that's a great question. That's a great question. And my answer is she she wants to go back to, to the tribe. She wants to go back to Mob, to her fellow Capellans. And she wants to tell them that she killed the, the Earthman. She killed the baby. So that they could get away and the baby would live. Yes, that's what I think too. She knocked him out because if she would have decided to leave on her own, McCoy would have said no way. He would have tried to stop her. Of course. So that's why she knocked him out. So here's why I think it's good and here's why I think it should have, could have been much better. Is that why I think it's good is that McCoy is totally wrong. He did convince her to value the baby. She right. is doing this to save the baby's life. I, I agree with you. But it's not hitting emotionally. Like if if in the moment, so McCoy's nodding off and she looks at him nodding off and then she looks down at the baby and we have a moment of her looking into the eyes of her newborn child and then she knocks him out. Then we would understand, oh my God, she's doing this. So he's saying it happens too fast. Yeah, it happens. And, and we don't focus on the right thing. When this is, you know, because this is my editor brain, but it's like we don't... When you do a shot and a reaction shot or a shot and reverse shot, what you're frequently doing is you're telling the audience what the character is thinking. So if you had the shot of her looking in the baby and Julie Newmar has a moment to and even touch the baby's face for a moment, then we go, oh, she loves that baby. Yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. we don't have that moment. Right. And so it's a little vague why she goes back. It all, you know what? You're right. I think that the way that it's filmed, it makes it look like she's just being selfish. Yeah. Not, not noble. Yeah. Whereas I think it is really noble. Of course it is, but we yes. Just don't, well, and this is why, again, it goes back to 
you know, time in a film is always a zero-sum game. So any time you devote to one topic, it's time you take away from another topic. And that's why I go, those scenes in the Enterprise, although there are good lines in them, you could have done them in half the time and had more time with Ellie and, and McCoy, mm-hmm. you know? I agree. Speaking of which, we're back on the Enterprise, and there is a ship coming right in front of them, and it is a Klingon warship. There's a Klingon warship in the original effects it, it is just like this glowing thing that doesn't really have a yeah. defined shape. But in the revised uh, special effects for the, the, the remastered versions of the original series, the effect is on the, on the screen. And you can see in the distance that it is a, it is a standard-looking Klingon warship that we're familiar with. Right. So actually, I think this is another, yes, another moment where the, where the new effects actually make the episode better. Question for you. Yes. What, is there a name for the thing that comes up out of Sulu's console that we are seeing for the very first time in this episode. It's not there. There's no actual name for it. It's like his personal scanner. Hmm. But I think that is so cool. I do too. And you, you hear it. It sounds like it was the actual sound of that scanner rising. Uh, It doesn't sound like it was something that was overdubbed, but that was pretty cool to see that rise yeah, for the first I, I time. I really like it. I wish they had done stuff with it. I think there was, it's a really cool bit of design. Yeah, I agree. That's the end of Act 3. Act 4, we're right back on the bridge of the Enterprise. That Klingon ship is right in our path. Holding a position dead ahead, sir. Drawing a line, daring us to step over it. The alien's directly in our line of flight. And I'm like, aren't you in space? <laughs> you could, it's not like you're on a road. Hmm. You could go below it. You could go above it. You could uh, yeah. go to the right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it seems like you'd have more options than going right, <laughs> right at it. But that is what they're do. They're going to do. Uh, the warriors are heading up the mountain. Um, the camera zooms back, revealing Kirk and Spock with their bows and arrows waiting in ambush. Uh, and one of the touches I really like is the warriors are all standing there looking pretty tough and strong, and the Klingon <laughs> scrambles up totally out of breath. and Total, out, of out of breath, and he's like, you know, brushing off his uh, uniform from the dust and everything. You're right. This is uh, a subtle but effective way to establish, you know what? Sorry, Klingon, you are not a Capellan. Yeah. The Capellans are they're upright. They look like they are ready to fight even after trudging through the desert to, to find Kirk, Spock, and McCoy and Elian. But they don't have the moment of Ma'ab looking at the Klingon and going... Disgusted. Uh, in disgust. They, we don't have that moment. That would have made it, made it better. The Earthmen make excellent game. Their cleverness has surprised me. You know, I think Michael Dante's performance as Ma'ab yeah. is terrific. And at that moment... This Capellan says to Mob, calls his name because here comes Elian. The child is dead, Mob. Do as you will with me. The Earthmen? Dead. I killed them as they slept. But Cross, the Klingon, doesn't believe her. And but Mob says, well, she's the wife of a tear, so he takes her for her word, and they start to retreat. And the Klingon has had enough. No! First we verify her story. Is this what your sworn word means, Klingon? And Kirk shoots at that moment with his bow and arrow and hits him in the leg. By the way, one thing that I don't think they deal with is the contradiction between I, this is the wife of a tear, she wouldn't lie, and the fact that 30 seconds later we reveal that she, she did, did lie. lie. Yeah, We never really deal with that. And we get into a battle. They're throwing their Klee at our guys. There's like the classic stuntman fall. 
Uh, yeah, it's yeah, totally yeah. like out of the universal stunt show right. where a guy does a high fall off a thing and lands behind some rocks. You can just see Joseph Pepney off, uh, off camera going, again, action. Yeah. <laughs> the guy falls. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> um, the Klingon fires at Spock. There's a big explosion and there's a moment of Kirk worried that Spock got killed. Mm-hmm. Spock. Spock. But he's fine. Here, Captain. Again. Okay, Steve. Yeah. There's a lot going on in this yeah. episode. And now you have this fight between this one guy, this Klingon, who's got a phaser. Yes. And you've got Kirk and Spock with bows and arrows. You've got the Capellans with their, their Clea. Yeah. Uh, I think this is a pretty damn fine action scene. And yeah, it's shot on location of Vasquez Rocks. Well, and this is why it went over schedule. I mean, like, the idea that you were going to shoot all this stuff in six days. Yep. That's pretty nuts. And we have a quiet moment with Kirk and Spock. The cavalry doesn't come over the hill in the nick of time anymore. If by that you mean we can't expect help from the Enterprise, I must agree. But Kirk wants that Klingon. Yeah. One of us must get him. Revenge, Captain? Why not? I love the <laughs> why not is great. That's a great, that's a great beat. And at this point, the Klingon has lost it. You and your primitive knives and your weapons. I'll teach you what killing really means. And the thing that I find interesting about this is... We have shown that Crass is wimpier than not only all the Capellans, but wimpier than Kirk. And he's out of shape, and he's a liar, and he's afraid. But what does he have? A technological advantage. Which is not enough. Yep. Fight! Are you warriors of children? And she goes, look, I'll make a dis- basically a distraction so you can kill the Klingon. And Mob draws his knife and says, As steer of the ten tribes, I give you back your life. Mine is now forfeit. And Mob goes out into an open area to get the attention and the distraction of the Klingon. Klingon! And Cross fires, kills him, and the Capellan draws his clear, hits him right in the chest, and boy, does that hurt. <laughs> it is also a terrible stuntman who looks oh, nothing like him. And I'm just going like, it. all he does is take the shot in the chest, which is... He doesn't get hit with anything. It's just the the way you do it in camera. And then he just falls down. I'm like, you couldn't get an actor that could just fall down? I mean, like, that's it's, it's an awful, awful stuntman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and here's the thing. Another question. Why does Ma'ab give her back his her life and decide to sacrifice his life? That is a great question, Steve Morris. That is something I've, I've thought about and pondered for, let's say, 50 years. Every night as you go to bed, you go, why did Mob do that? Why did Mob do that? Maybe because he realized that his judgment of the Klingon was wrong. And he realized that he was not the leader he thought he was. And that his final moment has to be the sacrifice to make it right. And, and this is the only choice that he thinks he has. So this, to me, points out exactly why good filmmaking is good filmmaking mm-hmm. and why this misses the mark. is because I 100% agree. I think that is exactly what's going on. And I think if you had had just more details, some of the ones that we've been talking about throughout this story, this moment would have been incredibly dramatic. And it isn't that dramatic. Like, in the initial conflict, he supports the Klingon, and Akar doesn't support the Klingon. And if you had built that up just a little bit more, and not just been good to have two people to bargain with, but to be like, 
the Klingon has totally, totally conned this guy. And then you have the moments like we talk about. He comes up, he's out of breath, or we see the fear in his eye, and we see Mob look and think. I was so wrong. I was, and then we have this moment where he pulls the phaser on everybody, and then cut to Mob going, "Oh no!" Well, he Mob says, "Is this is this what uh, you know?" But it isn't emotionally there. You're right. You know I, I agree. Mean? I because, agree because intellectually, it's totally what it is. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. him going. I have betrayed the tribe, and now I will redeem myself by sacrificing my life to save the tribe. That would be, you could have made this moment where we were stunned and almost in tears. Right. But it's not. It's, it's, it's cool that he sacrifices himself, but it's not emotionally there. You know, that's a really great point. That's a really, really great point. And you would have really seen Ma'ab go out with a high. Exactly. It was just a one more rewrite away from really establishing Ma'ab as a, as a fully realized and dynamic character. Well, and it's shot selection and editing, because if you just had him, when the Klingon comes up out of breath, if you just had him look down at him and shake his head, then we would have advanced that story just a little more. It's not even a script. It's Could just like a, a little moment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. now Kirk and Spock, foolishly, I think, just come down out of the hill towards the guys that were trying to kill them. And fortunately, <laughs> right at that moment, up comes Scotty and a bunch of red guys. Hold it there. Drop your weapons. All of the warriors drop their weapons, which I totally don't believe. Uh, There's no so way these guys drop their weapons. The, the cavalry moment. did come over Cavalry the did totally come over. Maybe about five minutes late. Yep. But yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they're the the phasers are drawn. Uh, um, I understand. I think you're. I see your point about like the 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 Capellans like dropping their weapons, dropping their clea. But they just saw they just saw what a phaser can do. Okay, I just had another rewrite. Yeah. Okay, you want my next rewrite? Let's hear the other. I, I, don't, know people, I don't know how people <laughs> want listening to Enterprise incidents feel about this, but you know we were talking about again about her character and that her character could be more heroic. Mm-hmm. They don't drop their weapons. Instead, they raise their weapons, and we're about to have a slaughter. And we hear Elliot's voice say, stop. And she stands in front of Scotty and his men and tells Kirk, tell your men to lower their weapons. Oh, my God. Steve, that's great. And you're establishing Elian yes. as the new T-Air exactly. of, of the Ten Tribes. Oh, my gosh. What a... What a what a growth. You know, not only would that have been an amazing arc for Elian. Exactly. But you would have established Elian as this really, as, really strong exactly. woman that Fontana wanted to establish her as from the beginning. Only you're you're leaning into the rewrites that Roddenberry did, but still bringing it back to the nobility and the strength that that Fontana wanted to instill in this character. And you preserve the warrior class so they don't just drop their weapons when faced with superior technology, which isn't in their character. And now that those warriors look at her and go, oh. For everyone listening, what do you think of Steve Morris's rewrite of Gene Roddenberry's <laughs> rewrite? Of Dorothy of, Fontana. Of, uh, of, of Gene of Coons. Gene Coons rewrite of Dorothy Fontana. Let us know. Go to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents. Let us know what you think of Steve Morris's rewrite of, of Friday's Child, which I think is just fantastic. Well, A, thank you. And B, <laughs> we have the advantage of 50 years of hindsight, and they're rushing into production yes. on a super no tight kidding. schedule. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. didn't get to watch the episode 
dozens, hundreds of times <laughs> and think about it to come up with a something better. But we do have a very funny moment at the end because McCoy is doing some uchi coochie coochie goo to the babies. Uchi uchi coochie coo. An obscure earth dialect, Mr. Spock. Uchi coochie coochie coo. If you're curious, consult linguistics. Which is funny. Well, at any rate, this should prove interesting. Interesting? When the woman starts explaining how the new high air is actually Dr. McCoy's child. What's that again, Mr. Spock? We don't actually understand it ourselves, Mr. Scott. Nor does Dr. McCoy. That's a funny beat, and it would be a funny beat for the end of the episode, but we get another funny beat, which I actually, this is one of my favorite Kunism. Yeah, I, I like this one. The Kunism that we are back on the bridge, and we, you know, we have the coda, this, this coda at the end of the episode where we learn that the child has named Leonard James Akaar. And by the way, that child grows up and and has been seen many times in comic books, mm-hmm. Star Trek comic books. There's a, 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 I think a Deep Space novel or two. Oh, really? That has has a grown up Leonard James Akaar. So, you know, you gotta love the retcon. I think it's awesome, and I think that's why we're here. <laughs> and this little beat of the child was named Leonard James Akaar has a kind of a ring to it, don't you think, James? Yes, I think it's a name destined to go down in galactic history, Leonard. What do you think, Spy? I think you're both going to be insufferably pleased with yourselves for at least a month. Sir. 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 I really like that beat. Yeah. I think it's really funny. I, you know why I think this Kunism really works? Because you had moments of levity throughout the episode. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like you had... It wasn't had, a shift in tone. Like It wasn't yeah. like, uh, let's say, Operation Annihilate, which was an extremely heavy episode filled with a lot of death and a lot of loss. Yeah. And then they decide to end it with this you know, Kunism about this box of Vulcaneers and yeah. the hearing. Uh, in this case, I think the Kunism absolutely works because you had Kunisms throughout the episode, the levity throughout the episode, and it's right in tone and in tune with the entire episode. And that brings us to the end, my mm-hmm. friend, of Friday's Child. What did people say about Friday's Child? Well, a lot. Director Joseph Pevney said that was a funny show, a great show. Julie Newmar, who played Eliane, said, I know when I read something if it is worthwhile. And I know that in the first few pages. Good writing. That's what saves a show. The heart of any show is in the writing. We had it with Batman, and you've got it with Star Trek. Ty Andrews, who played the Klingon, said, I had enjoyed Star Trek before doing Friday's Child. Oh, cool. This was the first time that I had been given the opportunity to wear a costume in a film role, and I was very much into that role. It was a fun part. Michael Dante, who played Ma'ab, said, and this is really interesting, Steve, and we should have talked about this, actually. He says, Ma'ab wasn't a villain. He had this very strong concept of what his laws were. He was willing to die to preserve his people, and that's what he did. And that's a very powerful character from which to draw upon. That's a great insight, and yep. it's great that Michael Dante himself absolutely knew the character he was playing. Jimmy Dewan said, I thought I ran the ship beautifully, to tell you the truth. I agree. <laughs> I do, too. Yeah, he did. He said, it was a nice change of pace, although I think Scotty's best place was in the engine room. The final word comes from Dorothy D.C. Fontana herself, who said, interestingly, I never really cared much for that episode because I couldn't get the message I wanted across on it, that not all women are mommies, not all mothers are mommies. I felt that Gene Roddenberry changed the whole attitude 
In changing that central character, he changed the story. You know, I see her point, but I like what Roddenberry did with it. I, I can't judge it having not actually read her script. You know, because seeing from the descriptions, it doesn't sound like something that would work for me. But that message is a really interesting message, and particularly coming from a female writer. Um, here's, my, here's my general feeling is that the best episodes of Star Trek combine, I would say, at least three things. One of them is an adventure. You know, there's a real conflict, there's excitement. The second is ideas that we're really going to, whether it's technological ideas, philosophical ideas, moral questions, we're going to explore them. And the third, and maybe the, the most critical one in some ways, is emotional connection. Is that in the best episodes, the emotional stakes are high. So where do you think Friday's Child falls short? Well, it's, it's that, is these characters, and it really would be the supporting characters, it's their journeys. It's all the little details where they're kind of there, but you don't feel emotionally connected with the situation. If it was about her realizing the value of McCoy and McCoy being courageous, if it's about her becoming the leader that she needs to be and the mother that she needs to be, Ma'ab realizing that he had made a mistake with the Klingon and then understanding what true sacrifice meant and what he had to do to save his tribe. Like, those are all emotional journeys that are in there, but you don't feel the emotions. That's what I think. I I, I see your points, and... I think because of this re-evaluation that, that we are doing, and certainly the, the epiphany that I had about McCoy's character being so strong and so, so dynamic in this episode, uh, and because you know, McCoy is a character that I've always really, really, truly cared about, yeah. uh, I think that that, that that reassessment has made me appreciate this episode a whole lot more. At the same time, I agree with you about characters like Ma'ab and Elian being one white one rewrite away from being more fully realized and capturing those emotions for guest starring roles and, and, and supporting characters. Where I think the episode falls short in, in, in those three points you pointed out is in the ideas part. Now, throughout the course of this conversation, I realized that Friday's Child does have, it, it is a cousin Two episodes yeah. like Errand of Mercy and A Private Little War and probably even... Um, uh, a taste of Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Where this episode falls short, falls short is that those ideas were not explored with the kind of depth that those other episodes did. So that's where I think Friday's Child falls short. But I think ultimately, like so many episodes we talked about, Steve, this is an episode that that has gone up in my estimation because I'm impressed by the production values. I'm impressed by by how many how many speaking parts there are and how many characters actually do have substantial moments i love that all seven members of our of our main crew have chances their chances to shine in ways that we saw in in movies like star trek 3 and star trek 4 mm-hmm. or in episodes like the doomsday machine and, and again uh, joseph pevney i thought did a superb job like you said and shooting on location and still bringing the episode in maybe a little bit over schedule but still on 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 a, a still an impressive schedule in his own right and i just think that overall while I don't think Friday's Child reaches the heights of second season episodes like Doomsday Machine or Mirror Mirror. I still think that it's, it's still a, a, a damn fine episode, gone up in my estimation, and is absolutely an episode that I would watch again just for the hell of it. Well, you know what the big question is now? 
What do all of you listening think of Friday's Child? Go onto our Facebook page. We'd love to hear your comments. What stories within it moved you? Did you like the action sequences? You can also contact us on Twitter at Enter Incidents, Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher. We love those reviews on Apple Podcasts. As we said, they really genuinely, in addition to helping the show, they mean a lot to Scott and I. We really, we really do care about those reviews. Um, Scott, if people wanted to reach you on the Internet, how would they do that? You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. And please be sure to share Enterprise Incidents with your fellow Star Trek fans, whether they are diehard fans of the original series or they kind of just seeing some episodes here or there this this podcast enterprise incidents we are discovering so many listeners who are watching the episodes and then listening to our podcast or listening to our podcast and then going back and watching the episode but either way uh, uh whether you're a diehard fan or a casual star trek fan please share enterprise incidents so but i would love to know like if i was going to listen to our deep dive on friday's child what episode of the cinephiles, Steve Morris, do you think is comparable to Friday's Child that people could listen to on the cinephiles? You know what? Since Dorothy Fontana wanted to do a story about a woman's journey, I'm going to pick a very different kind of cinephiles episode, which is we did an episode on A League of Their Own with directed by Penny Marshall with director and writer Kay Cannon as our guest. And she came on and it is one of my favorite episodes of all time about two sisters and a woman's journey through this baseball Did you story. cover on the cinephile, Steve, did you cover Thelma and Louise? We haven't done it yet. Okay. In addition to the social network, mm -hmm. which we are going to do at soon. some point soon, I'm going to raise my hand and throw my hat in the ring to join you and your co-host, Johnny Roca, to do a Cinephiles episode on one of my all-time favorite movies. Certainly one of my favorite Ridley Scott movies next to Blade Runner, which we did on the Cinephiles. Yes. We absolutely should do a Cinephiles on Thelma and Louise. I so. love it. I haven't seen it in a long time. Oh my God, the movie's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. It's 30 years old this year, 2021. Perfect timing for a Cinephiles episode on Thelma and Louise. In the meantime, we wanted to say again, thank you to everyone listening. Thank you to Star Trek Michael for your feedback and for everyone providing their feedback on Apple Podcasts. Please join us for our next adventure on Enterprise Incidents where we meet the god Apollo on Who Mourns for Adonais. Until the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, keep going boldly. <laughs> <laughs>